Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. I've titled this sermon, Hypocrisy, the Sneaky and Subtle Sin. The Sneaky and Subtle Sin. The love of praise is a dangerous thing. It is so easy to fall into a life of doing those things that will garner us the most applause. I blame our parents. I blame our, our parents because ever since we first learned how to walk and how to talk, we've been receiving praise. After our first steps, everyone is so excited. When we utter the simplest syllable that resembles a word, there's this great attention that comes our way. And then day after day, year after year, the praises keep coming. And the feeling of being rewarded becomes addictive. Even to the point that as we grow older and begin sharing our stories of past events, we exaggerate in order to present ourselves in a more favorable light. The goal? That we'll receive greater praise and greater recognition. For example, how many of us played sports in the past, even high school sports? By show of hands, great, great. Here's what, here's what happens. The older you get, the better you were. The older you get, the better you were. So that by the time your fist is teaching all who would hear that when it comes to the righteous works God has called his people to do, our motivation for doing them should never be for the praise, for the purpose of receiving praise from man. Our good works are primarily for God's glory. And I say, I say primarily because the person or people who are benefiting from our good works are in a real way receiving aid or some type of relief from our benevolence. However, if the motivation for our efforts is to receive praise and rewards from man, our text today says that is the way of the hypocrite. That is the way of the hypocrite. The last time we were in Matthew's gospel, we saw Jesus telling the multitude and us, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And if we were to, to, to connect that last verse of Matthew chapter uh, 5 to verse 1 of Matthew chapter 6, which is the beginning of our text for today, it would tell us to Aim at perfection, but beware of mere show. Do your best for the glory of God, but beware of doing it for the glory of yourself. So let us take a moment before, let us take a moment to go before God in prayer so that our eyes and our ears may be attentive to His words. Father, we thank you for this time. We ask you uh, to open our hearts that your word may penetrate deep so that a change will come. Open our ears that we may hear the truth of your word, Lord God, and say amen, even within, that we will recognize our flaws, our distance from you in our behavior. And even positionally, Lord God, if, if, if there's someone who doesn't know you as Savior, I, play, I pray that they would see their need for Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, and know that that is the only way they can come to you as a child, as one who has been plucked from the fire. Please save today, Lord. It is in your blessed son's name that we pray. Amen. There are two points to this sermon. Point number one, our good works are for God to see. Our good works are for God to see. And point number two, our good works will be seen by many. Our good works will be seen by many. 
In our text, we'll see how these two seemingly contradictory statements actually work together. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Once again, page 811 in your pew Bibles. This is the pure and true word of God. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Point number one, our good works are for God to see. The love for praise and recognition was the second greatest desire of the Pharisee. Money was the first. So whenever they gave money to the needy, they made sure people would know in order to receive praise and recognition. So verse one starts out with Jesus saying, beware, meaning meaning give full attention to to to, to watch out for this. To watch out for what? Practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. In direct contrast to this, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus tells us to let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. What's the difference? Why is Jesus saying, let your light shine before men in one part of his sermon. And then a few moments later, he's saying, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in another part of his sermon. To help us understand this, I'm going to defer to John Stott. Now, Stott was an Anglican theologian and preacher. And what he did is he let the text itself shape the sermon so that you felt God himself was speaking directly to you personally. He deals with this apparent paradox well when he said, it is our human cowardice which made Jesus say, let your light shine before men. But it's our human vanity which made him tell us to beware of practicing our righteousness before men. Cowardice keeps us from serving God publicly for God's glory. It even keeps us from evangelizing. But serving from our ungodliness, our depravity, uh, these things that still remain in our flesh, willingly causes us to boast in the things that we actually do. So we have to be careful of doing whatever it is that we do in the presence of men. Why? Why do we do what we do? Our motivation is always the question we should ask ourselves. Our motivation is key to the text that, of what Jesus is saying. Our motivation for any good that we do as salt and light is that God will get the glory not us. When we seek it, that's vanity and pride. But on the other side of that, letting the light of Christ in us shine forth for God's glory is our calling. It's what God has saved us for, that he would be exalted. But showing and sharing with everyone our light, our sacrifices, our gifts, our time, and our treasures in order for us to receive rewards and applause from men is sinful. The goal for us should always remain the same, that God will be lifted up for all to see. Our good works will naturally show up in public, but prayerfully, here's what happens. God will receive the praise for his ability to transform those who were by nature incredibly selfish beings into people who now live to help other people. In Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 2, Solomon said it this way. Let another praise you and not your own mouth. 
a stranger and not your own lips. One thing to note is that when Jesus speaks of righteousness in this text, the word he uses uh, most often refers to the acts of giving, prayer, and fasting. Which may be why immediately after this, he addresses those three topics. And God willing, we'll see this as we continue to break down this uh, chapter in the, in the upcoming months. Here, Jesus is summing up all of our good works in one comprehensive word, righteousness, which is something that meets God's divine or official approval. So the first half of verse one of Matthew chapter six is actually saying, beware of practicing those things that are officially approved by God before other people in order to be seen by them. The good and righteous things that people were doing in those days were approved by God. But their reason for doing them is where the sin came in. That's why hypocrisy is such a sneaky and subtle sin. It, it, it creeps in and disguises itself as kindness, as compassion. But it's really vanity and pride that's seeking self-glorification. For those who go down that path, they will be severely disappointed in the end. Because Jesus goes on to say that they will have no reward from their father who is in heaven. According to Vincent's word studies, this sentence should be read with the preposition with as opposed to from. So that the meaning of the verse would be for then you will have no reward that is with your father who is in heaven. That means the reward that was reserved and waiting for you that was with the father is no longer there. The word used for reward means to appropriately compensate. Some people aren't comfortable saying we will receive a reward from the Lord once we get to heaven since our inheritance is more than enough. Since our salvation is so much more than we deserve. And that sounds great. That sounds so spiritual and so holy. However, scripture clearly speaks about rewards in addition to the inheritance of salvation that we will receive from our most gracious heavenly father. And we got a glimpse of this about a, a month ago when we went over Matthew 25 in the parable of the talents in Sunday school. For those servants who were faithful while the master was away, they received a reward upon his return. The master represented Christ in the parable and the servants represented all believers. The master told the faithful, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. They were rewarded in proportion to what they were given in the beginning. The text says they were set over something. And I recognize it is a parable. So I'm not going to speculate over the details, but something is being given to the faithful according to their faithfulness. And we know it's not salvation because that's not given based on our faithfulness. That's given by grace and grace alone. But when it comes to rewards, that's something different. That's something a believer can lose. In 2 John chapter 1 and verse 8, John warns believers of this by saying, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Then in Mark chapter nine, the disciple John uh, said to Jesus, uh, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And John is so funny because they weren't following you. They were following Jesus. But you remember what Jesus said to him, right? He said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon after to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Two things to recognize from that verse Mark chapter 9 and verse 41. One, 
The good deed is done because you already, already, already belong to Christ. It's not to earn salvation. It's because he already purchased you by his blood. And number two, the person who did the good deed because they belong to Christ will by no means lose their reward. Once again, this is not speaking of uh, the inheritance of salvation that we receive from God, but the reward that is with our father. The, the reward is in his possession and he is ready to give it to the faithful. This is explained so well in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 12. I need you to turn there. I just need you to turn there. And if you're using your own Bible, it would be so great if you circled this text and then just write reward in the margin. And if you're not sure, you can even put a question mark next to it. But it's page 953 if you're using the Pew Bible. And I would ask that you don't mark up the Pew Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 12. I'm just going to read verses 12 to 15. This text is one of the clearer texts when it comes to figuring out whether or not believers will receive a reward on top of inheriting salvation. It says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation, which is Christ, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, that's the day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the reward that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive what? A reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So here we have two groups of believers. We know they're believers because both groups will be saved. The only difference is whether their works will bring a reward or be burned up. Whether their works glorified the Lord and were valuable to the kingdom or worthless and lacking substance. That person with the worthless works, even though they may have received a pat on the back or an applause or two from people on earth, they will suffer loss when they stand before the holy judge of the universe. This brings us full circle to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1. If our acts of righteousness are done for people in order to be seen by them and not for the glory of our Father in heaven, then whatever praise or whatever reward from them is all we should expect. Your reward will no longer be with the Father, but it will be burned this is why Jesus warns in verse 2, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. The word needy is not in the original. Jesus is saying, whenever you do, do good works, good godly works, don't sound the trumpet. Now, there are a couple of inter, in, in, interpretations I saw while I was uh, uh, preparing this. And number one, uh, it has been supposed that the filthy rich Pharisees had a trumpet literally blown before them to give everyone a heads up that they were giving to the poor of the neighborhood. Another in interpretation I saw of this verse was uh, this refers to the clang of the money as it fell into the metal trumpet shaped alms boxes which were found in the synagogue. It was sweet music to the ears of the proud giver. Now, as far as both of these interpretations go, uh, the best scholars have found no trace of any such practice in Jewish literature. And it is hard to imagine that, that, that such a thing would have been done in the synagogues. In addition to this, it goes against the common sense meaning of the text. Jesus said, when you give, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. The word hypocrites that he used uh, comes from a Greek word which signifies an actor playing a part in a play. Using a mask, he had two faces. 
Jesus used this word to compare the almsgiving trumpet blowers to all hypocrites everywhere. It's absurd to think that all hypocrites everywhere had a trumpet played whenever they gave to the poor. It's just a figure of speech describing someone as being their own trumpeter or someone who toots their own horn, as we like to say. It's like taking someone, or it's like talking to someone at the church, not this church, the church down the block, or that way, this way, but not this church, right? Uh, and, and, and after church, as you're talking to them, all they're relaying to you using different words is, look at me, look at me. Did, did you see what I did? I give to the church until it hurts. I sacrifice my all because I want to see the church glorified. And, and, and I, I, I held back on some things that I could have had in this life. But no, for God's glory, I give and I give and I give. But uh, did, and did I mention that I give till it hurts? Now, 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 listening to someone like that, do you see the hypocrisy? One side says it's all for God's glory. But the other side reveals it's all for their glory. Family and friends may not see the hypocrisy, but Jesus does. For the hypocrite, their greatest desire is to be praised by others. But I want you to notice something from this text. At the end of verse 2, the word praised is actually the same word that is used for glory. As Pastor Matt has taught us, it means to ascribe weight to something. And this is done by recognizing the substance, the value of something. The Lord is saying that everyone who desperately wants the world to ascribe glory to them makes it known. It's like blowing a trumpet when they do good, so people will recognize their substance, their value, and give them glory. Jesus said they have their reward. The Greek is more expressive. It reads, they have their rewards to the full and so exhaust. There is nothing more for them to receive. They craved the praise of men, and they got it. They wanted to be glorified on earth. There you go. It's yours. They are not concerned with the honor and glory that comes from God. And they will receive none. To be clear, it is not a sin if word leaks out that you are kind and generous. But it is hypocrisy to be kind and generous for the sole purpose of having people know your kindness and know of your generosity. The intense desire to be recognized must be replaced by a Christ-like desire to build up, restore, strengthen, and comfort others in their affliction. Being the glass half full type of guy that I am. I know you can hear that just coming off of my voice, right? Um, I like to think that most hypocrites don't start out that way, especially if they are in a position of leadership. They may begin by doing a good work, but then really wanting to inspire others to follow their um, example, they take that extra step. That's when they go out of their way to ensure that those who need to learn how to do good and righteous deeds observe their good works. Follow me as I follow Christ, right? It's, it's biblical, but unfortunately, here's what the flesh does. Whether it's due to the compliments uh, they receive or the, the, the great attention that they're getting, some forget. They forget what their goal was at the beginning. They forget that it was supposed to be for the glory of God. They forget that they were put in that position to teach others how to glorify God. And I believe that's one of the greatest uh, issues that the churches are dealing with today is 
if I can't show you how God is able to take a simple-minded, sinful, evil-hearted person and flip him so that instead of trying to take from you, love causes me to give to you. If I forget to show people that, it gets lost in the translation. I am relaying to you that as long as people see me, I'm going to serve. If nobody is seeing me, I'm going to back up and my heart may be filled with some type of, begin to be filled with some type of bitterness because nobody is saying, Mike, you're doing a good job. Mike, you're so good at what you do. And the flesh wants that. The flesh says, hey, 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 you're doing this for nothing because nobody sees. Nobody says thank you. I think of Henry Nguyen. He was a professor of pastoral theology. And reading his testimony, he describes how he personally fell into that trap. He said, and I quote, as I entered my 50s, I came face to face with a simple question. Did becoming older bring me closer to Jesus? I found myself praying poorly, living somewhat isolated from other people, and very much preoccupied with burning issues. Those were the topics of the day. How do I deal with this that's happening today? Missing the eternality of the kingdom of God and what he has placed in me that I may lead others to take their eyes off of the today issues and see the glory of God. How can you lead somebody to do that when you're not doing it yourself? He goes on to say, everyone told me I was doing well, but something inside of me told me that my soul was in danger, that the spirit was being suppressed, that something had to change. And that's the great thing, because as long as you have breath in your lungs, you can change. You can turn. We don't get to that place where, oh, I've done so much. Oh, I am a wretch. No, we, we, we leave Romans 7 and we jump into Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That past stuff is past stuff. And you say, Lord, forgive me. Change my heart. May I remember who I've been called to be. How you snatched me from following the traditions of my parents and grandparents and this ungodly line. How you took my mind off of those things that happened to me in the past that brought me into this state of I have to get even. I'm so angry because of what happened to me. Lord, you have taken me from that and you have made me glad because of who I am now. Because I can see you and I can worship you. And it doesn't matter what I used to be. And the things that happened to me in the past, I throw that into the pot of Romans 8.28. One of our favorite verses. But uh, to start that verse, Paul doesn't just say all things work for good. He says, for we know. Now where does that confidence come from? From the spirit of God and from the word of God. For we know. That for those who love God, that's key. Who do you love? It will be shown once life gets hard. Who do you love? Do you love God and you endure for God? Or do you love self? And I can't take this. And why me? For those who love God, all things work for good. All things. That's hard sometimes. Not just the good, but the worst thing that ever happened to you is working so that those who love God, it will come forth that you were called and that you care that it's done for his purpose, not yours. Your purpose, your purpose is temporary. Your purpose comes today and is going tomorrow. You, you have this great idea in, in, in 2020, and then all of a sudden COVID hits, and that purpose is gone. What are you going to do? But God's purposes 
puts that in the all. That's not a blip that God didn't see, but all things work for good to those who love God and are called for his purpose. You have to see God's purpose. Getting back to Henry Nguyen. What did he do? He, he has this dilemma. He's in his 50s and people are saying, good job, good job, good job. But he felt that he was distanced, uh, distancing himself from God and doing these earthly things. He turned. In his 50s, he turned. He did something about it. He didn't just say, oh, man, I can't help it. This is where I'm at. He left academia. He left. And he went and lived and served in a community for people with great mental and physical challenges. All to avoid becoming a subtle kind of hypocrite. He didn't want to perform frantically for others, impressing them with his ministry while his own soul withered away. Every pastor, every deacon, every missionary runs the same risk of starving their own souls while feeding others. Now, with everything that I have said up to this point, I don't want you to run the other way. I don't want anyone leaving here saying, hey, let me pull back from serving so much. This takes us to my second and final point. Our good works will be seen by many. They will be seen by many. Even though Jesus warns against hypocrisy, he never says stop serving. He never says we should avoid expressing our faith before others in ways that truly build up the body of Christ. He says just the opposite, which I mentioned in, uh, in my opening, Matthew chapter 5 and verse uh, 16, where he says we are the light of the world and we are to let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. In the first 16 verses of, of chapter 6, I'm not going to read them. Uh, maybe you'll read them later, but eventually, God willing, we will go over that uh, through sermon. But in the first 16 verses of chapter 6, Jesus expects his followers to serve faithfully as those who have been redeemed, ransomed, and belong to him. That's why in verses 2, 5, and 16, Jesus didn't say, if we give to the needy, or if we pray, or if we fast. But he said, when you give to the needy, when you pray, and when you fast. These activities are to be a natural part of the life of the Christian. Now, truth be told, I can't tell you the last time that I fasted. I, I, I can't recall... Uh, the date. That's shame on me. And I pray you're better than me when it comes to fasting. But I also pray you're doing it for the glory of God. That your works, your pure works and your good works are being done for a pure and holy God. That is what a life of true worship is all about. Those closest to you who God calls you to shine the light of Christ before, will naturally see many of your good works. But it's not for you to blow your horn, to make it known. It's for you to live a life of sacrifice that they just can't help noticing. I love the way Paul says it in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. He said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He's appealing to all who would dare call themselves a child of God. He's saying we should live sacrificially for the one who showed us such 
great mercy when we were helpless and on the road to hell. To live sacrificial lives for Christ is only logical. But even on the human level, we're able to see how we would do this for someone who has done something great for us. And you yourself being on the other side of that as the giver of the sacrificial act, just take a moment to think of the times you yourself have used that in pleading with someone else to do the right thing. And, and, and you may have reminded them of some great sacrifice you made on their behalf. Now compare that to the mercy God had on you. How you would have been left in a terrible condition if God didn't sacrifice his holy and beloved son to save you from the eternal lake of fire. Once we've thought about it, even for a moment, we should be compelled to present our bodies. That's our everything as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God as an act of our spiritual worship before our king. The King James Version takes the original word for spiritual, logic king, and interprets it as reasonable. This is your reasonable service. And that, 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 that makes sense. For all that God has done for us, it's only reasonable we give our all for him. And if it's truly all for him, nobody else has to hear it from our mouth that, that here's what I am doing and it's all for him. When it's all for the Lord, God will give you the praise and the glory. It will come from him. This is how our works are for God to see and yet our works will be seen by many. This is how two seemingly contradictory statements actually work together. We don't have to let the people that we are serving around know verbally. And this is what Jesus is communicating in verses 3 and 4a. He said, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret. As in verse 2, the word needy is not in the original. To not let your left hand know what your right hand it, uh, was doing was a proverbial saying, signifying that our generosity should be such a secret that one part of us would have no knowledge of what the other part of us is doing. Throughout the Bible, the right hand is seen as the stronger, more righteous, and more spiritual hand. So as our stronger, righteous, and more spiritual side is serving God and loving the body of Christ, our base and fleshly left side is left out of the equation. Our fleshly side wants to uh, let everybody know what we're doing. But according to Jesus, the attention to how much we uh, do should be so minimal that there's no need to share that information with anyone. That's what doing something out of pure love and joy looks like. It's like, it's like spending a great amount of time on a birthday party for your 10-year-old. Once you see how much joy it brings them, the amount of effort you put into it goes away. You don't even think about that. Likewise, when we bless someone in any way, the joy we bring to them, the, the, the relief we, we, we've given them, and the joy we brought to our Father should bring us enough joy that the time and effort we put into helping them is a distant memory, a thing of the past, and there's no need to bring it up. When it comes to our service in the kingdom of God, the question we have to constantly ask ourselves, as I said earlier, is why? Why am I spending my time to serve? Why am I spending my time to help the downtrodden? Why am I spending my money to give to the needy? 
Is it to be seen and applauded or to be rewarded financially, to, to, to have it come back in some way? This is the mindset of those who are caught up in the prosperity gospel even right now this morning. That is a self-centered heresy. Christians and those who look like Christians are persuaded to get thousands of dollars every year because they're told they will reap a harvest from God when they do. The people are reeled in and fooled by this spiritual Ponzi scheme that always, always promises more than it can deliver. But they're not innocent victims. Their deception is due to their own lust. The Apostle James warned of this. In James chapter 1, he wrote, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We're all guilty. All guilty of having sinful desires at times. But we are called to repent, to turn from ungodly lust. We all struggle, but thank God for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. Personally, I wish I could transplant or ingrain that into the heart of every believer. Sorry, into the hearts. I'll get to them later. Into the hearts and minds of every unbeliever. If only they could understand and believe that Jesus is able to take away the filthy stench of sin that keeps them separated from him. If only they could understand and believe that Christians aren't saying we're accepted because we always do the right thing. On the contrary, we're saying we're accepted because the blood of Jesus has removed all of the wrong and sinful things that kept us from God. Our past, present, and even our future sins have been removed by the soul-cleansing blood of Christ. <clears throat> if only they could understand and believe there will come a day, and it's coming sooner than they think, when this life will be over, and they will stand... <clears throat> before the most holy, all-powerful, and all-knowing judge of the universe and have to give an account for their lives. As Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13 says, no creature, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I'm begging you, unbelieving friend, turn. And believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about having more information. You know you're a sinner. You know judgment day is coming. Run to the Savior today. His name is Jesus the Christ. Give your life to him today. <clears throat> to end this section. Jesus wants again, brings up the promise of receiving a reward by saying, your father who sees in secret will reward you. In this instance, it appears the Lord is not just speaking of the reward that comes to the faithful on the last day, but rewards that we receive in this life. I believe the editors of the King James saw this, so they added the word openly to the text. The KJV ends verse 4 by saying, And thy father, which seeth in secret himself, shall reward thee openly. The encouragement we get from this verse is that by performing our righteous acts in secret, God will see the act, be pleased by the act, and will openly reward the act in this life. By observation, whether it's the, the scriptures, especially from the Old Testament, or from life today, really has it been found that man or woman who is generous to the poor has suffered loss because of their compassion towards the poor. The mature Christian who recognizes that God does not always grant us rewards in the way we think 
knows that God has rewarded them, and they will confess it through their testimony. For example, God has openly rewarded the generous man or woman with more Christ-likeness, which further rewarded them with better relationships, better mental and emotional stability, and a peace that surpasses all understanding. Isaiah confessed this to God in Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 3 when he said, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. God rewards his people who give graciously and privately to the needy in more ways than we can count. Also, within the church, for those who serve in secret week after week, their reward comes in the form of, of this internal contentment and satisfaction in serving others and relieving their needs. This is how a few of you here at Woodside can continue to serve year after year, despite the struggles of life that frequently come upon you. Nobody knows all the trouble you've seen, but God knows and rewards. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. There, the writer addresses those Jewish believers who were suffering, yet serving, suffering, and still serving. And they needed to be reminded that their works weren't being done unnoticed. He writes, for God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. We serve a just God. We serve a God who pays attention. We don't have to justify ourselves before men. We don't have to sound the trumpet when we do our good deeds. When we stand before God, we can be sure we will receive a just reward. Our Father who sees in secret will reward us openly. Now, I have three applications for you. And I guarantee you're going to want to have this. You want to write this somewhere because you're going to need this. Three applications for you. <clears throat> Application number one, wait to talk about yourself. Wait to talk about yourself. If you want to see just how much you crave the praises of men, try going a whole week without talking about yourself unless someone asks you about yourself. It may seem easy to still do. If you feel your labor is in vain, six or the following text, give more, pray more, and fast more, and don't tell anybody what you're doing. Give more, pray more, fast more, and don't tell anybody about it. Not friends, not family, not co-workers, and definitely do not put it on social media. We don't want to see you with your face like this saying, join me in my fast for Jesus. It's been three weeks and it's been hard, but pray for me. I'll pray for you, all right. But this takes being intentional. We are called to be living sacrifices before a holy God who just happens to be our father. So give him more of yourself. Communicate with him more and deny yourself more. And don't tell anybody about what you're doing. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it is all for your glory. You created the world for your glory. You sent your son for your glory. Providentially, you guided us to your throne. And that was even for your glory. That we may show the world what you are able 
to do. And wretched man, how you are able to turn us from our self-centered evil and fleshly ways and use us to help others see the glory and beauty of your Son, your only begotten Son. And Lord, I pray that those you have placed in our circle by your incredible wisdom, whether uh, uh, parents or children or our siblings or our neighbors or our co-workers or distant relatives, that they would be able to see the light of Christ when they look at us. That, that, that they would want to know what happened. How we turned from works of darkness to be living sacrifices. I pray for those right here who don't know you, who don't understand, that you would strike them, Lord God. That you would move them powerfully. That they would turn to your son. That they would not uh, continue to make excuses of why they won't turn. But they would humbly see your face and seek your son and cry out, Lord, forgive me. I am wretched. Lord, save me. I am foul. And I pray you would hear from heaven and grant them life. Turn them, Lord God. Give them salvation. Let them praise you from their core. Bless you, Lord. It is in your blessed son's name that we pray. Amen.